Welcome to the WRSU Crew, the revolutionary show to hear all things sports, from your very own Rutgers Athletics to the hot topics in all professional and collegiate sports from around the globe. Coming to you from your own Rutgers students. Sit back, relax, and enjoy your ride with the crew. A new week, a new crew, and another show here on WRSU-FM New Brunswick, the Monday edition of the WRSU Crew here on 88.7 FM, also online at WRSU.org. Alex Carbonati here with Eddie Kalegi and Gideon Fox. Gentlemen, hello, hello. Welcome to this new week. Hello, hello. Should be an exciting show. A lot to talk about. Absolutely. So much going on. Gideon is here in one piece. Somewhat, I guess, maybe. But... <laughs> Gideon, you are here nonetheless. It's good to see you in sort of one piece. Yeah, good to see you guys too. <laughs> I mean, look, that's the best part about radio. Don't even have to, you know, as long as my mouth works, I'm here and we can talk. That's true. Um, but yeah, definitely a lot to talk about. Very busy weekend for Rucker sports, professional sports. Absolutely. Really everything. So much happening. We'll start with Rutgers sports. We'll start with Rutgers men's basketball. And a team back and forth this year had a good promising win versus Clemson on Tuesday on November 30th in the, in the Big Ten ACC Challenge. They beat Clemson for the second time in about eight months or so. Of course, they beat Clemson in the March Madness tournament uh, last year. Seemed promising somewhat entering Friday night's matchup in Champaign. The result was not too pretty. They lost 86-51. to Rutgers is 4-4 four four on the season. They're 0-1 to kick off Big Ten play. And guys, the route does not get easier. They play host to Purdue this, this upcoming Thursday at Jersey Mike's Arena. I mean, again, this team that, that, that had a, a lot of high expectations and lots of promise entering this year, they had that promise in that one game, but seven of eight games have not been the best results or best showings for Rutgers men's basketball this year. Yeah, look, I mean, we're at the point of the Rutgers men's basketball schedule where we're pretty much done with non-conference games. We have a couple. We see in Hall, obviously, but I mean, that's the difficulty of the Big Ten game. We have a couple non-conference games right before the new year when, when Kent Brooks and Connecticut State and Hill is main. But this next week and what we saw last Friday, this is going to be the toughest part of the Rutgers men's basketball schedule this early in the season. Illinois on the road. Illinois at home is not an easy matchup. Illinois on the road is even, is even harder. And when you're playing, you know, you're playing in an unfamiliar, you know, for, for a lot of these guys, they haven't played significant minutes on this team before. Guys like Andre Hyatt, Ralph Gonzalez, AG, backup center, these guys who haven't really played too much mm-hmm. are still getting used to everything and still kind of just getting into all of it. So playing Illinois on the road, not an easy matchup. Sure. And look, you don't want to get blown out. You don't want to lose by 35. But I mean, w- I don't know what else you could expect this early on in the season from what we've seen with this team so far. And unfortunately, I think it's going to be another tough matchup against Purdue. Purdue's the number one team in the country. Mm-hmm. But I think, you know, compared to the rest of the games that we played so far, as much as it hurts to lose, you know, by two to schools like Lafayette or two to UMass on a buzzer beater, mm-hmm. it's Illinois. This team has tournament potential. We're going to play Purdue that has national championship potential. Absolutely, We can't get ahead of ourselves here and... Even if we got excited last year and the year before about how good this basketball team was, Rutgers is still trying to make a name for itself in the college basketball landscape. We're still a building program. We're still a developing program. So, look, losing by thirty six to or thirty five to Illinois, maybe that's a wake up call. Maybe that uh-huh. kind of shows us where we are, and that's okay. I don't, you know, I think everyone expected to make the tournament this year. I don't think anybody expected to win the Big Ten or be top three no, in the right, Big right. Ten. But I mean, maybe that's a reality check. Maybe that shows us where we should be, and I'm okay with that. If that's what our reality is, that's okay. We're going to work on it. We're still building ourselves up. We're still going to be in a good place come a couple of years, but maybe that's a reality check. Hmm. 
I don't think you should read too much into the Illinois game. They're one of the top teams in the Big Ten, of course, of what we saw. We saw what they did last season, and despite them not being ranked going into the game on Friday, really, they're probably going to be in the top 25 at some point this season Absolutely. for sure. And it's hard to really read into the Purdue game either. They're one of the best teams in the country. It's going to be about once they get into the real Big Ten slate where it's every game in January next month, if Rutgers can contend, if they can defend their home floor against some teams that are probably in the bottom half of the Big Ten. If they can take advantage of that, they can get back on track. But I was on Nightline on Friday night, and we had a caller who was saying how really the important thing for Rutgers right now is canceling out the losses from the beginning of the season Mm -hmm. and finding ways to sort of get balanced again. Because the net rankings came out today, they're 217. They're last in the Big Ten by a wide margin. So there is a lot to grow from. That Lafayette loss is debilitating for this program. Mm-hmm. UMass as well. Clemson got them a little more confidence. That was a good win for them to defend their victory from eight months ago in the tournament, but there's still work to be done for this team. But what I think is going to be crucial as well We haven't talked about these games that much, but from the 18th to the 29th when they play against Ryder, Maine, and Central Connecticut State, in past years you'd think, oh, those are three easy wins. Those are mid-major programs. But we saw what happened the first few games of the season. So Rutgers has to make sure they stay focused in in those games at the end of 2021 before they get into the Big Ten schedule. Take advantage, get those wins, and try to make the most of this week. I know Purdue and and Seton Hall are going to be two difficult games. Seton Hall on the road. Purdue, the number one team in the country right now. But if Rutgers can stay afloat and then win the three games that they're supposed to win, I think they can still be in a relatively comfortable position heading into the Big Ten slate in January. So let me ask you this question. You mentioned those games. Look, they're they're 4-3 and three in out-of-conference play this year. You've got Purdue. You have Seton Hall. One's in conference. One's out-of-conference. Big East Power 6. The rest are mid-major teams like you mentioned. So... Out of these games, those three games that you end 2021, to, are those games to a certain extent more important than the next two against Purdue and Seton Hall, or no? I think it's more important than the Purdue game. Okay. I, I, I think Purdue Purdue is most likely going to win when they come to Jersey Mike's Arena. This, the, the student section might be packed. It could be loud. It could be a great atmosphere, just like it was for the Purdue Clemson game. Purdue is just much more talented. Yes, yes. And there's you, you really can't sh- shake that any other way. Mm-hmm. Seton Hall, you never know. I know the Pirates have already played spoiler in a couple games this season, especially against Michigan. Right. And it is on the road at the Prudential Center. So that's going to be a challenging one. But that's not one you can run off the same way as Purdue. That being said, making sure that you capitalize in all three of those out-of-conference games, your last three sort of gimme games for the entire season, right. you've got to be able to win those games. Right, so so are those games sort of what could define this year, possibly? Could that make or break what happens for this Rutgers team, especially in 2022? It could make or break. I don't know if it necessarily defines them, because obviously the number of Big Ten games that they play in January and February are really going to define them to see Absolutely. how they stack up in a conference that typically has a lot of teams make it to March Madness, Uh but it certainly doesn't hurt, and it certainly will help if they can get back in the win column and get back on track against these mid-major programs that in past years, they would come to dominate these last two years. I mean, they'd win pretty comfortably throughout November and December, and they're kind of going back to how they were at the beginning of the Steve Peichel era and even the Eddie Jordan era when the team was a little shaky when they first entered the Big Ten. And that's not what we expected from this program whatsoever. So they got to really look towards turning this around. And it all starts throughout these next five games. Really, I think Seton Hall and then those other three games are must-wins, mm-hmm. essentially. Absolutely. Well, Alex, so, you know, looking ahead to the schedule like Eddie, you did. Alex, you were at that Illinois game. Right. 
you look at the scoreboard of it, and it was just not a pretty game for Rutgers. Were mm-hmm. there any positives that you saw from the Scarlet Knights? Were there things they were trying to do that just didn't work because they're playing such a tough team? To be honest with you, look, look, as a whole, it was all Illinois from start to finish. We all know that. It showed on the scoreboard. It showed at the beginning. All of that. One improvement or one positive you can say, even though they had four free throw attempts, they started strong by 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 driving to the basket, creating fouls, and actually shooting free throws and making them. Ron Harper went two for two. Two of his five points were from the line. So one improvement or one sort of positive spark that you can uh, discuss about this Rutgers team is their free throw shooting. It sounds crazy compared to last year, but they have been improving in that category to a certain extent. And look, it might have been two for four. They might have been fouling a lot. They gave up so many threes. They gave up plenty of free throws on the opposite end because of the many fouls and put and by putting the fighting Illini in the bonus time and time again. If, you're, if, if this Rutgers team wants to build a structure or build something to build off upon of, you got to get more chances at the free throw line. And look, they foul a bit too much. You you have to limit your fouls, of course. But at the same time, don't be afraid to drive the basket. Sure, it might be easy to say against guys like Coleman Hawkins and Kofi Colburn and guys like that who are just big, muscular, big men who define Big Ten basketball in that certain area. But I think the fact that, you know, you see sort of an improvement from from the free throw shooting this year early on compared to what it was last year, that's something they can carry on entering Purdue, entering Seton Hall, entering the rest of this year. If you drive more to the basket, create more foul opportunities, and get more chances at the free throw line, that could put this Rutgers team in an offensive situation they have not been in for a period of time. Yeah, Alex, and right now Rutgers is shooting, is scoring an average of 11.8 points from the charity stripe while holding mm-hmm. opponents to 11.6. Right. So, I mean, a good basketball team is going to be shooting way more foul shots than that and sinking uh-huh. more foul shots than that, and they're going to be holding their opponents to that too. And, you know, if that's, that's the stat that comes out every night, you're canceling out your foul shots of your opponent's right. foul shots, which is great for the defensive standpoint, but for the Scarlet Knights team that's struggling to put points up, you need to get points where they can, and you're absolutely right. I mean, no, that, absolutely. that involves driving to the basket. We saw that a lot against Clemson. We saw a lot mm-hmm. of and-one opportunities, a lot of successful and-one opportunities. That, you saw that a bit early in Champaign, but once Illinois just took control, got in the heads of Rutgers, were just flying from downtown, flying from inside the arc, something I really noticed on, uh, on Friday, Illinois would be able to pin Rutgers in one certain territory, make them focus on one area, and as they attracted Rutgers to that one part of the field, the opposite end, especially in the corners, were just so wide open that Illinois, whether it's um, you know wh- whether it was Trent Frazier or Williams or Plummer, whoever else you want to put in- into that equation, Illinois would just hammer shots from downtown with really little to no uh, to no contention whatsoever. So Illinois was able to pin Rutgers to a certain area to make them work, especially defensively inside the arc, leaving a wide open gap on the opposite side from the corners, that's where Rutgers really got burned from downtown in that specific regard. Yeah, and that's one of the real surprises with this team because I feel like the big question going into the season defensively was going to be inside the paint because Miles right. Johnson gone, Cliff Amore, I mean, he was impressive as a freshman, but there was still obvious growth that was necessary for him to become a dominant big. For sure. And this team didn't have a ton of size, but I feel like inside, they really haven't been too terrible this year, but the problem, and it's been consistent, it wasn't just this Illinois game either, allowing open shots from beyond the arc. Yes. Merrimack and JIT, they were they were closing out inside. They were preventing mid-range jumpers, mm-hmm. but then they were leaving open threes. And 
team, good teams are UMass able to especially that. in that second yeah. half yeah. when U- they blew that 17-point lead. Yeah, UMass as well. DePaul, you could mention that when they were going back and forth mm-hmm. on the three-pointers. Even Clemson. Rutgers got very lucky in that game that Clemson just had a horrible shooting performance right. really until the final 10 minutes or so. So it's, it's a consistent trend with this team. And if you're going to do that with that style of offense, almost, a, a, almost like an NBA-style dynamic, then Rutgers has to be able to compensate for it and be able to shoot the ball from deep as well. And we haven't seen that. I know Geo Baker's been hurt, mm-hmm. but even when he's been on the floor, he hasn't been as effective as he was down the stretch last year. Ron Harper Jr. is really the only one who's been able to consistently hit shots, and even he hit a bump in the road against Illinois. So that's really the big concern, and maybe not the concern we saw coming into the season, but it's definitely a problem right now. Absolutely. And Cliff, you mentioned Cliff. I mean, I'll be honest with you. I think he's been the most consistent player we've seen all year thus yeah, far yeah. in eight games. Oh, without and, a doubt. And and this is a guy, he's getting rebounds. He's he, he's averaging almost a double-double every game. He's been there left and right. And I mentioned free throws. Entering Illinois, he was 16 of 25 from, from the line. So when your big man is shooting 16 of 25 and also leading the team, except for Ron Harper Jr., in that category, that says, says a lot right there about this sophomore, you know, sophomore sensation who's been really piling on and being more not not a burden, but 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 really carrying this team and being able to play consistently game in and game out, whether it's a win, loss, draw, whatever. You mentioned Geo Baker, Eddie. Geo Baker has been really struggling and and in that game versus Lafayette when he got hurt, he went one of nine from the field, one of seven from downtown, what you know, some, some something of those stats to that regard. The point is is, is that he shot not good. He shot really, really poorly. And when and he missed consistent shot after at, after a consistent shot, there were times where you know the ball was not flowing. You're 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 seeing that a lot with this team. And again, there's no like there there is no consistency. There's no true you know stamina or repertoire or any of that. It's just they're going out there game in and game out, and we're seeing the same exact thing. That's the way I'm taking it at least. Yeah, I think so. It's really regimented at this point, and they go the same way. And it seems. Illinois was a bit of an outlier because they actually got off to a good start in that game for the first five minutes or so, but mostly this season the trend has been that they have a really quiet first half, they cannot shoot the ball, they can't hit threes, a couple people get into foul trouble, then the second half they sort of compensate for it, sometimes it's enough to pull out a win like we saw against Lehigh, against right. Merrimack, and then other times they come up just short like Lafayette and DePaul, and right. that that's the concern, and you have to be able to play all 40 minutes uh-huh. at the highest level and that's something that the Scarlet Knights did throughout the stretch last season when they found success in the Big Ten when they were able to win a tournament game and nearly a second one but it seems like ever since there were five minutes left in the second half of that game against Houston the Scarlet Knights program has ultimately been a different basketball team and it's carried over into this season and I mean and even last year watching that back looking at that game you had a feeling that something was going to be a bit different and especially when Miles wasn't going to come back and Jacob Young wasn't going to come back. I personally had lots of questions in my head. What is his team going to look like next fall? What is his team going to look like in the 2021-2022 year? Can they keep it up? Can they keep you know prevailing? And can they carry that, that momentum they had from last year into this season? It, it has not been that narrative eight games in. And something we've been saying a lot, I think we're really missing Miles Johnson and Jacob Young more than we expected when they first left. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're missing Jacob Young more than we're missing Miles Johnson. And that hurts us a lot more, I think. Energy-wise especially. Oh, energy-wise energy is a huge reason. But also, Cliff Amore, 
he's not as good as Miles Johnson was last year. Uh-huh. He is leaps and bounds of the Cliff Amore from last year. Absolutely. He's going to only get better. The way that he's playing right now, he, he just has so much potential for development in right. the way that, I mean, he's the, he's going to be the, the future. future of this team. Him, you know, him and Paul are going to be here for the next couple of years. He is just absolutely locking it down at the center position. And of course, he's not going to be a top two center in the Big Ten this year, which is completely fine. He's going against guys like Hunter Dickinson, Trace Jackson Davis. Kofi Coburn. Kofi Coburn. You don't have to be better than them in your sophomore year. That's fine. I really, really like the way that Cliff's been playing, and I think that's it makes the Miles Johnson loss just a little bit easier to swallow. Like It still hurts. It'd be great to have Miles Johnson on the team still. It's Jacob Young that's the issue. Not yeah. having a guy who, no matter what, no matter what the score is, no matter what, a guy who will steal the ball and either give you a pass for an easy layup or will just dunk the ball himself. And you could sometimes, in years past, go to Gio, give him the ball, he'll just step back three years, a long two, right. and change the momentum of the game a little bit. But the thing was, Jacob Young was the—he was able to do it all. He would get the steal on defense yes. and turn that into points, either two or three points, whether he decided to drive or or pull a three. And Jy was able to adapt to his role, whether it was starting or off the bench. He was able to do that completely, regardless. You you saw him last year start. You also saw him come off the bench last year. And when he did come off the bench, he brought up a spark wherein this team was really down in the dumps or down by double digits, whatever it was. The best example of that that. I can specifically recall was the Wisconsin game last year at home, and they were down by over 10 or whatever it was. They only lost by six because of Jacob Young coming off the bench and putting up a total of 19 points. He led the the team in in in, in scoring that game. He carried that team to the to that close margin. Again, they lost the game, but the fact that Jacob Young's energy came off and really sparked a a that comeback attempt says a lot about what that team was and what that team did in that specific. Specific regard with Jacob Young. Now that he's not there, and that and 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 that Jacob Young can't come off the bench like he can, or can't start like he can because he's no longer with Rutgers. That's what's really changing up the offensive spark, and and I think just the overall mentality of this team from a focus standpoint, from a energy standpoint, and from building up that 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 energy themselves rather than than having to rely, rely on someone or something else. Yeah, and I think. That's kind of where the difference comes now because the Scarlet Knights, if they want to turn the game around, if they want those guys, you know, you're in a, you're in a shooting something, you're in a scoring drought of two to three minutes. You don't have a guy like JY to change that up now. Now you have to rely on two players. You have to rely on a guy like Paul Mulcahy or Caleb McConnell to force a turnover on right. defense. Right? Paul Mulcahy plays way bigger than his size. He's big. Yeah. He's big for a point guard, but yeah. he plays way bigger than his size, and he's not afraid to meet you at the basket. He's not afraid of getting hurt. He'll meet you at the basket. He'll get the block. He'll force a turnover or whatever. But Paul's not able. Then Paul can't score. I mean, at Illinois, Paul played 26 minutes, two for 11 from the field with four points. I mean, that's let's he, keep in mind he was being heckled the entire game. Yeah, but I mean, it's the Big Ten. You got to get used no, to no, that. No, and no, 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 I get that. But I, I, I just want to put that on the record. When a guy's just again playing 26 minutes, whatever it is, he's being heckled. He's being all of that. But the fact that you, you kept him on for that long. The fact that he was dealing with the heckling, he was dealing with this really tough loss and this tough game as a whole, the fact that he stayed on the court the entire time with such a poor performance, I think says a lot too. Yeah, and I mean, against Clemson to a home game where your fans are absolutely, there is absolutely Mm -hmm. no heckling of Rutgers at Jersey Mike's. He played 35 minutes with 5.7 rebounds. Mm. And you just don't have one guy to do it all now. You have to rely on a good game for Paul McKay, a good defensive game for Paul McKay to force a turnover. He's going to have to find Ron Harper Jr., who's either lighting, shooting the lights out from three or just bricking everything. You don't have Geo Baker to rely on anymore. He's uh-huh. hurt. Maybe you give the ball to Cliff. He'll try to jam it up the middle. His hands aren't fully there yet. He still had a little bit of trouble when he's finishing at the basket. Right. 
but we don't have one player to do it all now. We have to rely on guys like Paul to force a turnover, Caleb to force a turnover, Cliff mm-hmm. to block someone at the rim, sure. and then rely on someone on offense to put the ball in the basket. And I think th- not having JY, JY was able to take the job of two people and put it into one. And right. He was able to do that every night. Alex, like you said, whether that was starting, whether that was off the bench, whether he played five minutes or 39 minutes, sure. he was able to do that. Oh, absolutely. And, again, we, we talked a lot about this, not just the three of us, but really the entire de- – a, a, a lot of us here on the crew, this team lacks depth. This team lacks a lot of depth because behind Cliff Amor- um, Amori, who's behind them? I mean, Andre Hyatt's a great player, but can Andre Hyatt line up against Kofi Coburn and Trace Jackson Davis and guys like that? Who are you going to put up? Dean Reber, Oscar Palmquist, guys like that? So it's not just, again, the starters with their struggles and, and their back and forth, but behind those starters, what's on the bench, sure, you've got Jaden Jones and Jalen Miller and guys like that, but they're young players. And a lot of these guys off the bench are either freshmen or sophomores. So you're relying on guys who are either A, still not developed, B, who have barely seen time. They've seen some time to a certain extent, but not as much compared to Ron and Gio and uh, Cliff and all these guys. So when, when, when your top five starters are struggling, you have to rely on the rest of these guys who have little to, to no experience whatsoever. Yeah, and that's that's going to be very difficult when they have to stack up against other Big Ten teams because in the era that we live in now, with the COVID pandemic, so many athletes coming back for their fifth year, Yes, a lot of these rosters are composed of tons of players with plenty of experience, and Rutgers really, beyond Gio and Ron Harper Jr., don't have that much. And having so much youth on that bench, maybe these guys can develop. I've liked the way Jalen Jones has looked at times. I think Andre Hyatt has looked pretty solid, at right. least at no, the beginning of, of the season as well. But they're inexperienced and not having a reliable person to put in. And then really one of the main things that it boils down to as well is size and height. I mean, beyond cliff, it's difficult to really see what they can do to match up against these teams in the big 10 that are really known for their height and their Mm -hmm. size and their presence. And they are very fortunate. One good thing that you can say, and we've mentioned all the strides that Cliff Amore has made this season. One other huge one has been that he's not getting into the foul trouble so quickly like he would in his freshman season, because they really depend on him out there because you can see it whenever he's on the bench The team has no presence inside Mm -hmm. on offense or defensively blocking out the paint, and nobody else is really able to fill that void. So he's improved. He's played well, and Ron Harper Jr. has mostly played well this season aside from that Illinois game. Mm -hmm. But beyond the two of them, this Rutgers team is in a lot of trouble right now. Long way to go, but there's a lot of changes that need to be made here over these next few games. You mentioned about the foul trouble, and again, Cliff has changed, but a lot of players taking most of the fouls this year have been guys like Caleb McConnell. Like, Caleb McConnell's been fouling a lot. Paul Mulcahy, to a certain extent, ha- has fouled a lot. So you're seeing the veterans foul a bit more, and and the younger sophomore, like Cliff, not. It's kind of ironic, I think. And I think part of that has to do with, and it's really with Caleb McConnell and Paul Mulcahy. We've, both, we've all mentioned it. Both of them have really been struggling offensively this season and really overall on mm-hmm. the court. I think they're trying to overcompensate on defense a little bit and are being a little bit too they're in, aggressive. They're in their heads too much, do you think? I think so. Okay. I think so. And I think a lot of people have been very judgmental of both Paul and Caleb throughout the season. Absolutely. And I, and I think it's fair. I mean, they are not playing up to their potential because we saw their potential on full display through the last month of Big Ten play last yep. season. 
season and in the NCAA tournament. Yep. So it, it's it's frustrating, obviously, but I think there's still time. We know what these players can do. I think there's improvement that can come from them. But Rutgers, it's really just some fundamental things right now. Not fouling, closing out on threes, and scoring the basketball. It's some easy fixes for this team, but the question is, do they have enough talent on their roster to really make those changes and be effective? Well, Eddie, what do you think? Do they have the talent? I, 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 I like to, I'd like to think that they do because I know not having Jacob Young and Miles Johnson are two huge losses. Those are the keys. Yeah, but aside from that, they've got everybody back, and this team only lost by a couple points to Houston, who ended up making it to the Final Four last year. So mm-hmm. there's still a lot of talent on this team, and we, we all know what the expectations were so high. Many people assumed that they would be back in the tournament this year. Absolutely. So We all did here at WRSU pretty uh, yeah, much. <laughs> everybody did. So I think there's still, there's still a chance that I still have faith in this team, but it's not like we're just two games into the season now. We're a solid eight games in. And we just began big time play. Yes, yes. So things have to think if things are gonna change, they have to change quickly. This week's gonna be tough. But those, like I said at the beginning, those three games, Ryder, Maine, and Central Connecticut, though they are all gonna be so key for this team to try to reset, gain some confidence, get some double digit victories, because they're not winning by ten plus mm-hmm. points. You'd expect them to be doing that against those teams, and they were only able to do it against Merrimack. And they put up forty eight points yeah. in total. Yeah. Yeah, so they just got very lucky that their defense was so good and Merrimack only shot like 20% from the field. Mm-hmm. So those three games are when the adjustments have to be made. Hopefully Geo Baker comes back healthy right. because you know he's going to find his shot eventually. But Rutgers has to get a lot of things back together before they really get into the bulk of the Big Ten slate in January. Gideon, you mentioned earlier about a reality check. And that, you know, we're seeing that to a, to a certain extent right now. If this trend continues to happen and let's say 2021 does not end in a positive note how does that reality check truly spill into 2022 well by by positive note do you mean a tournament appearance no an ncaa tournament positive note meaning in 2021 specifically how they finish out these next five games oh you're saying just in this okay yeah i mean there's one part of me that wants to say you know it doesn't really matter what happens in 2021 if you could turn it all around and lose a couple Big Ten games, maybe two or three, then it cancels out the first half of the season. But these few games could make or break their year. Absolutely, and I think we have a unique stretch coming up, like Eddie, like you mentioned. We have a combination of conference games and out-of-conference games. Right. And those three out-of-conference games, except for the CN Hall game, those should all be gimme games, right? CN Hall is going to be the difficulty of a Big Ten game. Absolutely. I mean, it's technically on the road. It's an arena we don't always play, and we'll have a, there'll be a ton of, you know, tons of Rutgers fans uh, Garden State Classic, New there. Jersey exactly, Battle, all that. Exactly. Right. Like it's, there'll be your fans there, but it's a different arena. It's an arena you're not used to playing in. Right. Look, I yeah, I do think that 20, the next five games are a very, very important stretch for the Scarlet uh-huh. Knights. This could be, you know, there's what if if you can't beat teams like Ryder, you can't beat teams like Maine, how are you going to play Michigan? If you can't beat Lafayette and UMass too, how can you play Michigan and Indiana and all these other teams as well? It's just, it's really... It's really intriguing, and again, the fact that we're talking about this at this point, we probably would have said there's no way we'd be talking like this one, two months ago, because everyone expected, again, the March Madness run again, the big, you know, big, big hip-hip hurrah, and Ron and Geo coming back, and Cliff growing, and just all this excitement around the banks. There still is to a certain extent, but not to the way we expected it before this season actually began. Yeah, I mean, the hype was so huge for this team going in. And 
when I first looked at the schedule, at least through these first eight games, I thought that at worst they might be 6-2. and two. I didn't think they were going to beat Illinois, and then maybe they'd drop one to Clemson or DePaul. But aside from that, I had faith in the rest of these games that they would be able to capitalize. And that, and I want to conclude with this because like they've, they've been playing down to their opponents, it feels like. Sure. And we are talking about this on Nightline a few nights ago. Uh-huh. Steve Peichel coached teams over these past few years. We've seen them play up to their competition. Absolutely. When, when Coach Peichel first came in five years ago, aside from Miles Mack and a couple other players sprinkled in, there was not much talent. There had not been much solid recruiting for this team. He didn't have much to work with. And it's not like they were winning tons of games, but they were having some respectable performances in Big Ten play Mm -hmm. and were playing up to their competition against some really good teams in the Big Ten, even on the road. And we saw it, of course, last year when they made the big run at Houston in the round of 32 in the NCAA tournament and ultimately fell fell short. But this year, it seems like they're kind of playing really like relaxed, a little too relaxed, and they kind of have an expectation that if they're chucking up so many three-pointers, eventually they're going to fall. They have the talent on their roster. They think that they can eventually come back, and they were able to make sense of that and recover from first-half deficits against Lehigh and against Merrimack, but eventually as the uh, opponents got a little higher caliber. They couldn't do that, but there are still teams that Rutgers, you'd expect just looking at the stats, looking at the rosters, that they'd beat pretty handily. And it's shocking to see them really playing down to their competition because mm-hmm. in the five years of Coach Peichel, never really seen that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, it's just, it's it, it's a big counter change, really. Big counter culture type of movement where, again, you have the narrative, the focus on, oh, Lehigh or... Lafayette or whoever, yeah, we'll take care of them. It'll be a walk in the park. The real contests are Illinois, Purdue, Seton Hall, all all the Big Ten play, and, of course, that one out of conference in the Big East. That's where it really comes down. That's where it's really going to be focused. Lehigh and all these teams, eh, whatever, you know. But you're seeing what happens. And I think that we've seen that change. And, again, Eddie, you mentioned earlier, ever since that loss to Houston last year, they've played too conservative. They've, they've had that conservative mindset, and that conservative mindset has seeped into the process, I would say, of how they're playing so far this year in 2021-2022. But that's how we kick off the crew. New week, new show, new day. A new evening also here on the crew. Keep it tuned to 88.7 FM, also online at WRSU.org. This is the crew of WRSU, the Monday edition on WRSU FM, New Brunswick. Locks of the week, locks of the week, locks of the week here on WRSU FM New Brunswick's The Crew, the Monday edition on WRSU FM New Brunswick. Locks of the week, gentlemen, a new week, a new lock, and let's kick off with our good friend Eddie. What do you have for us to kick off this week for Locks of the Week on Monday? Well, fittingly, let's start with the big Monday night football game between the Patriots Mm -hmm. and the Bills. AFC has been insane with teams really beating up on each other. It's impossible to tell who the best team is It's all wide open. Yeah, the Ravens losing yesterday to the Steelers, Cincinnati's performance against the Chargers. You never know. There's literally like seven or eight teams who could end up with a one seed in the AFC, which is just crazy. But I'm looking at it. Pats and Bills, New England on a six-game win streak, briefly until the Chiefs won yesterday, actually held the number one seed outright in the AFC. 
They have the division lead right now. The Bills can take it right back tonight. The Bills are favored by three points, and I'm going to say I do not like that. Yes. I'm going to go with the Patriots here, and I don't just think that. I think they're going to win the game outright. I, I think New England's going to take the victory tonight. I just think this team has so much confidence right now. They're rolling at this point. Mac Jones has fit into that system so well. Mm -hmm. He doesn't need to be a crazy mobile quarterback. He doesn't have to be crazy explosive like some of these other quarterbacks really wanted to be out of the draft. But you know who else wasn't explosive? The greatest quarterback of all time, Tom, Tom Brady, Brady, who played in that system for 20 years. He has fit perfectly. He's got some complimentary running backs as well and weapons, which Tom Brady definitely thrived upon and coach Belichick has thrived with in the past and as for Buffalo we've seen this team's defense cave at times this year but my main concern with them is their offense which you never would have thought going into the season right especially the first couple weeks but Josh Allen has been very up and down this year it's not like he's turning over the ball a ton but they really stall out offensively they can't get the run game going outside of Allen mm -hmm. and Stefan Diggs Cole Beasley both of them have taken a bit of a step back from last year so and we've seen them struggle against some bad defenses too uh Washington briefly before they turned it on Miami they had a quiet game until the fourth quarter of course the loss to the Jags and Josh Allen being dominated by the other Josh <laughs> Allen so all of that said New England I've got faith in them tonight they're going to cover the minus three, and not just that. They will take the win on Monday Night Football and take a commanding lead in the AFC East. I agree with you completely, Eddie. I mean, the Patriots have just been unreal. And Tom Brady, now in Tampa, of course, won the Super Bowl last year, was better than New England last year. We, we go to this year when the Patriots are better than Tom Brady this year, without Tom Brady. And Mac Jones, again, having a great great season, but what really has defined that Patriots team is their defense. Mm -hmm. Their defense has really kept them alive to put them on the six-game winning streak that they're on right now, and that's a Belichick type of style type of team. With Brady, without Brady, look, Brady was the offense, all of that. Belichick was mainly defense, and you're seeing that Belichick component come alive this year, especially as they take on a Bills team that has been shaky on both sides of the ball, but like again, you, you mentioned with Josh Allen, he's been hit or miss. He can throw for over 300 yards, three touchdowns, no picks, whatever, or he can throw for under 200 with no touchdowns and two picks. He can also fumble sometimes as well. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that game versus Jacksonville. The game at home against the Colts last time around, they were supposed to beat them, and they got blown out and lost pretty handily to the Colts, who again have been back and forth as well this year too. So the AFC as, as a whole has been just so wide open, but I agree, the Pats will get it, and I would not be surprised if the Pats become the, the, the number one seed by the time we enter playoff talk. Eddie, I'm going to add on to your lock, maybe make a little parlay. I'm going to take the under in the game tonight. It's at 41 right now, and you're playing at the number one and number two defenses are playing against each other. Mm -hmm. And I'm with you that I think the Patriots will win, but it's going to be an ugly ground game. The weather's going to be a huge factor. There's snow, there's rain, it's cold, it's in Buffalo. It's just going to be a slow, ugly game on the ground. And look, as much as Josh Allen could throw the ball to Stefan Diggs, which would help me big time in fantasy, so... Hopefully it does for you. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what happens there. But, I mean, in, re in reality, you're playing – these are the two top defenses in the country. It's a pretty low over-under. 41's very much on the lower side of that spectrum, but I would still absolutely take it at 41. Buffalo, the, the problem with Buffalo, is that though, is that their defense is going to be really good or be really bad. That's the problem with Buffalo. And the fact that they're playing a team like the Patriots who are on the six-game winning streak have a pretty good offense, and their defense speaks for itself. The Patriots have the most turnovers and most points scored for a defense this year. 
it's going to be a challenge. I will go with the Patriots too. But the fact that Buffalo has been just so hit or miss, you can see the Buffalo team that we expect on both sides, but mainly defensively, you can see Buffalo just get shell-shocked by, by Mac Jones and company in a matter of matter of quarters really it could be it could be pretty handily by by the first half possibly yeah and we've also seen the Patriots score 45 points in iffy weather earlier this season yes. against Cleveland so this team has the potential At home. yes and they have they have the ground game as well they don't have to rely totally on Mac Jones they have running backs they have their defense to potentially force turnovers mm-hmm. we've seen Josh Allen struggle in bad weather as well yeah. hanging on to the football so I think there's a lot of factors going against Buffalo tonight and frankly I am very surprised that they are favored by three points yes, really at I am all. Too. I mean, they're below the Patriots in the standings. The Patriots have been the better complete football game, football team this season, and it's a night game primetime in Foxborough. So, I don't know. There's a lot of weird factors in this. The game's in Buffalo, I think, tonight. Oh, it is in Buffalo? Yeah, the game's in Buffalo, okay. yeah. Okay, that... that the website I was looking at says... Okay, never mind. <laughs> I, I'm just bad at reading. But all of that said... Even even if the game is in Buffalo, I still think New England is the better football team. I agree with you. Yeah, and I, I, I just have more faith in the Patriots right now rolling forwards. I do want to say, though, while it would be interesting to see them get the one seed, and despite the fact that their schedule does have some easy games coming up before the season ends, sure. I still think there are other teams that may have a better chance Kansas at City. getting that one seed. Yep, and that's who I was about to say. The Kansas, Kansas City. City Chiefs are rolling right now. Patrick Mahomes is still not playing his best football. It's still possible for him to get completely back on track, mm-hmm. and their defense has completely figured things out mm-hmm. over these last three or four games or so. They've shut down three pretty solid offenses in Green Bay, Dallas, and Denver all in succession, so I, I, I don't think it's really a lock that if New England wins tonight, they're on the path to the one seed necessarily, but I think they're in a good spot to certainly win the division if they take this one. For sure, absolutely. One thing I'll make. Uh, against Green Bay, let's keep in mind Aaron Rodgers wasn't playing. Let's, let's, let's keep in mind for that. It was Jordan Love. If Aaron Rodgers was playing, it might have been a different story in Kansas City. But with my lock, I'll go with uh, the Denver Nuggets, Chicago Bulls, big game at uh, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, games in Chicago. Bulls have been incredible this year. And we knew the Bulls were going to be good. They would be competitive. I don't think anyone expected to be the expect the Bulls to be as good as they are right now this year. 16-8, and 7-4 at home. They're playing Denver, who's 11-11, and 11, definition of 500. 4-7 on the road, but they're coming off a win at MSG. Chicago, man, they beat they they beat the Knicks pretty handedly. They beat uh the uh the Nets this weekend in Brooklyn. Uh, the spread's only two points. Take it, take it for sure. Chicago will get it. They'll take down Denver. Money lines minus one twenty five to plus one hundred five. Go with Chicago. Lock in Chicago on that. They've been fantastic this entire year. Demar Derozan might be in protocols right now, but. Regardless, I would still go with Chicago. They're playing a good Denver team, but Chicago as a whole has been more balanced and more well-equipped compared to the Nuggets this entire season. Yeah, I agree with that. And even without DeMar DeRozan, he's been really the key for that team. But there is so much depth on that Bulls roster. I've seen Alex Caruso play really well, Lonzo Ball, Zach Levine, Vucevic. I mean, there's so much yep. talent all across the roster. And Denver, I still feel like might be one of the more overrated teams in the Western Conference. Okay. We know how deep the Western Conference sure. is. And I, I'm not this is no knock at Nikola Jokic, because I think he was certainly deserving of the MVP last year. He's a great player. I don't think there's that much around him right now that could carry him very far. That's fair. And that much higher than maybe a sixth seed this season. Without Jamal Murray, 
There's not much for him to work with. I know he's a dynamic player, and it's not just about the scoring. He can pass the ball, too. But they don't have many good shooters. And without Jamal Murray, without Porter Jr., there really aren't that many options, aside from maybe Aaron Gordon and but a But he's others. been hit or miss, too. Yeah. Jokic, he's been inconsistent, yeah, Jokic too. Jokic has been inconsistent compared to what he did last year. Mm-hmm. And I, I know there are a lot of Western Conference teams that have been hyped up and that have been struggling this season so far. The Lakers won, the Clippers another. But I still think Denver may be the weakest of all of those teams without Jamal Murray. So I think it's still very iffy if they even make the playoffs. I I think think they'll make the play-in, but I don't think they'd make it into the top six right now. I think there's just too many good teams in the West, and I think there's too many teams that may have struggled out of the gate that are better equipped to get back on track than Denver is right now. Yeah, I mean, that's really a really intriguing take, and I guess you can, would you make the same argument for Dallas in that that regard, too? Yeah, I, I I think the Mavericks... I know they've struggled, and it seems like they're an automatic first-round exit every year, but Luka Doncic is improving each and every year. He has a better group with him, I feel like, this year than they have in past years. I think he's able to thrive off that. I know Porzingis has been on and off the floor, but all of that said, he's played pretty well when he's been out there this season. So I think the Mavericks are in a better position than Denver. And if you just go down the list, obviously the Warriors and Suns are better teams. Mm -hmm. I don't know when it comes to the playoffs, but at least in the regular season, the Utah Jazz are in a better position. I think the Clippers will straighten things out even without – Kawhi Leonard I think Paul George and the rest of the team is going to be able to carry them we know Ty Lue is one of the better coaches in the NBA and can get them back on track the Lakers are still a big question mark Memphis has been really good they beat Oklahoma City by 73 (sighs) points that was unbelievable without John Morant so I think there's too many teams right now for Denver to jump over to really say that they're a serious contender in the Western Conference Mm, that's that's a really intriguing take and you you would have been called crazy by the time the season started yeah if you put that out but to a certain extent you're not wrong Dallas I I can see in that same category. The Lakers, for sure, as well. Memphis might be legit. And, look, no John Morant, but Jared Jackson's been fantastic. Yeah. He's been incredible. Yeah, he's fit really well with that team. Dylan Brooks coming back for Mm -hmm. them has also been good. He's a great scoring option and the fact that they can do this without John Morant. And we've also seen last year when John Morant had a bad injury and came back so quickly. Right. Don't need to necessarily rush him back this time, but once he's back on the floor, you know he's going to be rehabbed and he's going to be ready to go. Absolutely. But that's our locks of the week. I tell you, it's good to be back here with a new week, a new segue, a new situation, but it's just another day, another week, and more bets to make. If we win your money, kudos to us. That's really it. But uh, this is the Monday edition of The Crew on WRSU FM New Brunswick. When we come back, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll do a little talk. Can we just talk? We definitely can talk for about two hours, but we'll do a can we just talk segment. When we come back on WRSU FM New Brunswick's The Crew, only on 88.7 FM and online at WRSU.org. Can we just talk? Can we just talk? We can definitely talk with uh, 11 minutes to go in the first hour and then one more hour to go here on the crew. Two hours, of course, on this Monday edition on WRSU-FM. New Brunswick, Alex Carbonati, Gideon Fox, Eddie Kalegi with you. Gentlemen, let's talk about a really intriguing but sad story 
on ESPN and multiple outlets, and that involves Medina Spirit, the horse that won the the uh, Kentucky Derby last May, but was 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 disqualified because Bob Baffert, the trainer, uh, injected the horse with steroids. The that same horse died today in Santa Anita, California, on a racetrack. So it was. It's a really shocking story, a really hard story to 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 really hear about, but. The uh, the horse Medina Spirit dies after collapsing on a after a post workout on the Santa Anita track in California. So with that in regard, Gideon, I'll go to you first. Just your thoughts and just the uh, your make of the story. Yeah, I mean, first of all, this is not the first time that Bob Baffert has been under the microscope. Right after the Kentucky Derby, Medina Spirit was tested for you know the typical post race drug test. Right. Um, and it was found to have traces of performance-enhancing drug. Yeah. Bob Baffert blamed it on somebody walking by the horse's stall and urinated in the horse's stall on food that the horse would eventually eat. Right. So he already is kind of a different kind of character. But what happened, or I guess it was earlier today, what happened there and what, Eddie, we talked about this before the show started, what's happened at that racetrack so many times, what's happened in horse racing in general is it's just, it's a complete, like, ownership and utilization of an animal and it's just it's fully it's abuse i mean they're you're injecting horses and i mean there are drugs that are legal to treat these horses because a lot of them have tons of medical problems because of the way that they're used and the way that they that they train and you know the the physical exertion that they put on every day there's so many drugs and so many treatments so many ointments that these horses go through every day Uh in such a regimen that goes right along with their workout regimen that would be subjected to even our best athletes in the country. But it's, you know, not a human, so it doesn't really matter to some people. And it's just, I think what what we saw today just shows how corrupt and how unforgiving the horse racing industry is. Um, and just how, you know, it's a lucrative industry. I mean, if Bob Baffert is probably sitting pretty with all the money he's made off oh, of absolutely. his horses. The owners of the racetrack are, are sitting pretty with the money they've made off of hosting races and and off all the practice sessions they have, but I mean, today just shows that how how awful this industry is. And whenever, you know, it, unfortunately it happens a little too often. But whenever we hear about a college football player who dies over summer workouts, it's all you know an immediate investigation into the coach, into you know how how little sleep the players were getting, how how little water, how much you know how how little water they were drinking, how Animals little food a, they were a eating. Different story, right? Though. Exactly. When it's a when it's a horse, it just kind of you move along, and there's right. some other horse that'll win a, another big race down the road, and then we'll talk about that horse. But I mean, it, this should be treated the same way that we treat any college that right. has, a, has an athlete that dies from from exertion. So what exactly has to change? Look, what has to change is there has to be. I mean, it's easier said than done, but I mean, the whole industry. I, I don't know how you change an industry like this. I mean, the whole thing, the whole industry is built off of gambling and making money. Sure. And when, once you get into gambling, you get into a little bit more of a little some shadier things. Some some people are willing to do a lot to make a to, to make a couple bucks. So, what has to happen here? I mean, you want to say there could be more oversight. You want to say that there could be more, you know, more drug tests every day. I, I mean, I don't know what, what the exact regimens are, but mm-hmm. you would hope that there could be some more oversight. How that happens on the ground? How you have the money to do that? I don't know. I don't know how you make up the money like that. I don't know the horse industry, the horse race industry that well. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you would go about improving something like that. But I mean. There's clearly some names and some racetracks that are always on the offending end of this. Yeah, and like same with you. I, I don't know much about the horse racing industry. Nor do I. But no. I do know that 
Bob Baffert, this is not the first time that he's run into some sort of trouble. His story has also changed multiple times. You said the first thing. Then he was saying that it was from an ointment from dermatitis that was what led to Medina Spirits. He blamed cancel culture back in May. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. So he's been all over the road, and I don't think he's the only one of these trainers, though. He's probably the one who's probably gotten in the most. And it's it's a rough industry. Oh, sure. I'm 100% with Gideon on that. But I think that a lot of it boils down to some of the people and some of the higher-ups that are really there and that have really tried to take control of the industry. And you see it a lot in other places as well, where the people with the most power seem to not really have that much care for really the people below them. Mm-hmm. And for the horses, it's it's different from any other athlete because they're put out there. It's not like they have a choice. I mean, they, they're just subjected to this. And uh, the report is that Medina Spirit died of a heart attack from overwork following a workout. So that it's it's very disappointing to hear. But one other thing that's kind of tied in with this that also relates to the horse racing industry is where Medina Spirit died. And that's at the Santa Anita racetrack, where it seems like you always hear about that's the place where things like this happen. Mm. And I was just reading another article from CNN that between December of 2018 and June 2019, there were 30, 30 horse deaths at Santa Anita. Wow. 30. So that's not just one or two. That's not you just hear an about occasional outlier. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's so many, and I can't speak once again. I don't know much about the horse racing industry, but I think if there were 30 deaths happening in a six-month span somewhere else, we'd hear about it. This is a track that was closed briefly and then has reopened, so I wonder if there's some sort of issue with this track, with its size, maybe with the surface that the horses are running on, because uh, in this area, at least, there's... Monmouth, there's the uh, by the Meadowlands, there's Yonkers, mm-hmm. and there are the there are the overarching Belmont issues. racetrack in New yeah, York Belmont, for sure, absolutely. Yeah. There are the overarching issues of horse racing that are kind of embedded within it, but the constant deaths that are kind of caused potentially by the track, potential the things like that, that all seems to be attributed to Santa Anita. Huh. So. I think you also have to look into that with this story as well. It's a crazy story, but I think all of this ties in to two of the major issues in horse racing, which is the greed and the safety of the thoroughbreds that are actually out there. And again, Bob Baffert's been in this situation multiple times, like you mentioned, mm-hmm. with different horses. When Medina Spirit won the Kentucky Derby, there were reports, and again, headlines of Bob Baffert, the greatest uh, uh, horse racing coach or, or, or greatest trainee, one of the goats of sports and all of that. And then once the story comes out, it's flipped. Is is Bob Baffert a cheater? Is Bob Baffert not that honest? Things like that. Where we gone from there now up to this point, how are we going to cement Bob Baffert's legacy? I don't think you can really cement his legacy at all. He has the money to be able to purchase the horses that are considered the most athletic sure. and also pay for the jockeys that are considered uh-huh. the best as well. That's why he's able to succeed in this because he has the greatest resources. It's not really him training, coaching the horse. It's not like he's Nick Saban out there cheering right. on the horse. Like it's He's the businessman buying it and just moving on. Yes, yes. Okay. The Patriots, for example, you attribute some of it to Robert Kraft, sure. but much of it goes to Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. Of course. Most of it does and does so. I think it's a very similar dynamic here. It's really hard 
without even considering any of these allegations or things that have happened in the past year to really consider Bob Baffert like a goat because really he's not the person who's riding the horse and he's not the horse. But all of that said, now with all of this coming to light and with this mysterious death with Medina Spirit, only three years old as well. Yeah. It'll be interesting to look into this and see what sort of developments come over these past, next few weeks as they look more into what happened. But uh, I, I don't really see how you can hold him to such a high standard like some people tried to after the victory in the Kentucky Derby in May. Uh-huh. Yeah, Eddie, I agree with you. I really don't think that – sure, I mean, he may be one of the greatest horse trainers in history. Uh, the same reason that – like you said, Robert Kraft, one of the greatest NFL owners in history. But it's like you said, it's not Baffert's not the one out there day after day riding the horse, training right. the horse, figuring out the horse's diet. He's financing it. Yeah, he's financing it. I mean, you look at like you brought up Nick Saban. I mean, you know, is the university president of any school with a good football program just as much? You know, does he do they deserve as much credit as the football coach on the sideline? Truth is, probably not. Right. Um, does the athletic director deserve as much recognition? Yeah, I mean, Pat Hobbs brought Greg Schiano back, but Pat Hobbs. Is doing so, you know, he's at the head of an emerging college sports program. Absolutely. And he helped rebuild them. But it's not like Pat Hobbs was on the sideline coaching the field hockey yeah. team. That was Mary the Civico. Mm-hmm. Right. He wasn't out there with the women's soccer team. That was Mike O'Neill. That was Mike O'Neill, mm-hmm. right. So, you know, I'm with you on that one. Look, maybe if none of this happened, maybe if none of bad Bob Baffert's horses died, or maybe if one of them died and it was a completely proved accident, whatever. But let's say there were no sketchy deaths involved in any of his horse racing career, I still don't think that he would deserve the recognition. Sure, he's, his name will go down like Robert Kraft. Sure. He would be a horse, the Bob Baffert racing track somewhere. Um, but I just don't think he's going to, he should go down in history like Tom Brady or, or Bill Miller. What yeah. type of precedent does this set, set though? An awful precedent. It okay. says that you could get away with it if you have money and you're able to, if you're if you're established enough, you could get away with anything. So nothing mm-hmm. new, pretty much. Just same old narrative, but now but now in horse racing. Yeah, yeah, you're and, untouchable. Yeah, and I want to connect it with one other thing with this too, because with the death, like I said, they they're saying it was a heart attack. With the fact that there was a positive test back in May, you wonder what other treatments, what other potential steroids, what other medications, herbal supplements are being given to this horse and. Is it healthy? Are these healthy things? Are these bad for the horse? Did these contribute to its ultimate death? Mm. So that's another thing, too. Was Bob Baffert and the other trainers and other people involved with Medina Spirit giving any sort of supplements to this horse? Did that potentially contribute to this and leaving Medina Spirit in a situation where it was overworked and exasperated and ultimately died uh, on the track? So it's a heartbreaking story, but uh, you guys both said it. It's nothing new, and I, I think we've seen it in horse racing before. This is probably the most pronounced. Sure. And with the way the industry is, I don't think there's really much that can be done to change it other than trying to neutralize people like Bob Baffert who have sort of taken advantage of the situation. I mean, again, you can do that, but there are so many other yeah. buyees and trainers who have this power and money that could just do the same thing with yeah. a different horse. Mm-hmm. No, so you might do it with one person, but it could... C- it could continue with this guy and that guy and this guy and that guy. Could go on and on and on and on and on. So you 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 set an example for one person, but is that example going to last? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But with hour one, that's how we'll conclude. One hour down, one hour to go. The crew on WRSU FM, New Brunswick, the Monday edition.